Hey, what's up, Blazer fans? Welcome to the Blazer's Edge podcast. I am Tara Bowen Biggs, joined as always by Danny Morang. Oh, hello, hello, hello. Oh my gosh, Dan, I can't believe I forgot to say Blazer's outsider Danny Morang. Eh, well, I mean, you're not the first person to forget that show. Well, I barely recognize you because on Halloween you had that amazing <laughs> wig on, or the night the other the, night you had the, your perm yeah, wig on. The, I wasn't even sure that was you anymore. Well, no, let's 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 line it up. The Halloween show we had the Wayne and Garth, where the blonde, long, flowing locks, and then for '70s night I had the uh, the perm wig on. That's right. Uh, and that was. Uh, yeah, that was something. I'm, I'm hoping you bring out the perm <laughs> wig again because that was amazing. It looked really uh, natural on you. The Garth one, it was kind of no. hard. It, yeah, no, it, it was. And it like the, the the shape of the of the the hairnet was just kind of weird, and it just didn't sit on my head. The perm one, and I, I said it on the show. I actually lost a bet in high school, and I actually had to perm my hair. So it's not the first time my hair is actually or my head has had a perm on it. So also not the first time you've lost an interesting bet. I put my hair on the line, okay? It grows back fast. <laughs> well, enough about us. We are joined by a guest today. Today we have Varun Bose of a Bleacher Report joining us. He is based out of New York, but he maintains his Blazers fandom from all the way across the country. And we're going to talk to him about how things look from the other part of the world and everything going on with the Trailblazers. Welcome to the show, Varun. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's so nice to put voices to the Twitter, I guess, uh, because I've been following both of you on Twitter for a long time. So I really appreciate you having me uh, on the podcast. Oh, awesome. You come on, man. Uh, I mean, Terry, you, you said he like he kept his Portland fandom when he went to New York. What's he going to do? Become a fan of the Knicks? <laughs> you know, Dan, yeah, I just believe everybody will find whatever path they are meant to find. So I don't want to assume anything. But that's a great... I mean, I mean, I wish that was the case. I mean, I'd like to get off track already. I, I had people coming at me the other day because I was talking about the USC-Oregon game on Twitter, and I wasn't supporting Oregon. It's like, no, I, I, I'm, I'm from Southern California. I went to USC, guys. Like, <laughs> just because you're in a place doesn't mean you have to support that team. We could do a whole separate podcast just on that game. Oh, God. <laughs> Has Clay Helm fired yet? I don't want to waste any more of Varun's time. Varun, could you, would you mind starting off by just introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about, uh, you know, how you became a Blazer fan and how you've managed to maintain that? Yeah, totally. So I was actually born in Oregon. Uh, I'm from Corvallis originally. My dad still lives there. Uh, I moved to California when I was I believe, with my mom and my sister. Um, and I've been a Blazers fan pretty much my whole life. Uh, it's funny because, like, w a lot of people ask me, why did I not become a Golden State Warriors fan? And Port Portland being Portland and, like, Oregon having, like, only the Blazers, that was, like, the one thing I kept um, after I moved away from uh, Oregon. It also helped that, like, around that time was, like, the late 90s, early 2000s, and the Blazers were really good. So that definitely didn't hurt by any means. And the Warriors um, were not trash. Yeah, but that, that being said, like, you know, I will say that, you know, if you grew up in the Bay Area, you definitely know that Warriors fans are, like, very, very true to the Warriors. Like, I, it, it's crazy to think about this, but, like, a lot of the talk is, like, bandwagon Warrior fans. And, like, if you meet people from the Bay Area, I don't want to turn this into a Golden State Warriors podcast all of a sudden, but if you do meet people from the Bay Area, they're super, super loyal to the Warriors, even when they were awful. And I feel the same way kind of about the Blazers. Like, I've been a Blazers fan my whole life. Obviously, like, they've been... They were very good in the early 2000s. They kind of went on the slump. And I'm not going to pretend that, like, it was the easiest to keep up with the Blazers at the time, especially when I was just, like, reading box scores and newspapers, as we talked about earlier. 
um, off the podcast. But uh, and then, you know, as technology improved, it was a lot easier to watch Blazers games. And, you know, especially in the last six to seven years, I've definitely like increased my fandom and I've, I've been a Blazers fan since. So it's 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 been such a fun ride uh, as a fan. Obviously, there's been some really, really low points, but um, it's been awesome. So how have you managed to like maintain, you know, uh, touch with the fan base and like, do you feel like there's stuff that you're like missing out on? What can we do to help out with that? Because if there's, you know, Blazer fans spread throughout the country, I would like to do what I can to support them. Uh, so like, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, being able to maintain a fandom, even if you're far away and there aren't a whole bunch of other ones around you? No, it's a great question. Uh, you know, I've always grown up as, especially as a Blazers fan, like I've always sort of just been like, I got used to being the only one. Um, so like a lot of times, like, you know, if my friends' teams aren't on, so if the Warriors, for example, weren't playing, they were all pretty supportive. Like Portland's a pretty likable team in general. Like nobody's really out to be like, you know, F Portland or whatever. Uh, unless I guess like you're a Lakers fan, I suppose. But like even Lakers fans that I know, they're not like very like anti-Blazers. I think it's very much a Blazers sentiment to be anti-Lakers. Then again, it's a sentiment across the NBA to be anti-Lakers. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've, I've always sort of just like grown up being used to being the only one. Um, and I think as I got older and as Twitter became more popular, like that was certainly an outlet that helped. Uh, I like to joke with my friends that like I don't have a Blazers like text thread by any means. Uh, my main text thread that I have with a lot of my good friends are primarily Warriors fans. So that can certainly be tough, especially over the past like four to five years where we've lost them every single year in the playoffs. That has not been super fun. Um, a lot of like exiting of the thread and then entering back after the game. But, <laughs> no. no, but like it's but I, I think honestly, like Twitter, uh, it's pretty cliche to talk about, but Twitter has certainly been a really awesome thing in terms of connecting me with a fan base. I've met tons of people which is really weird to say, but like, I promise you there are positive experiences of meeting people via Twitter. Like um, I'll shout a couple of people out from the Bay area, but like John Geffro, Neela, Ashton Batuza, like they're all just wonderful people who uh, Neela sort of like rounded all this up and like got us to go out together and watch Blazer games in the Bay area. And it was like a super, super cool thing that lasted for a couple of years. I think John PDX Bros Light is like still doing it in the Bay area. So that certainly helps. But I think Twitter has just been like an unbelievable, unbelievable place to, you know, carry on the fandom and also just like, you know, participate with fans when they're like not actually sitting next to you. So shout out to Twitter for like bringing it all together for me. I, I honestly like, Part of watching the Blazers game is being on Twitter, as both of you know, because I know you both tweet a lot. Uh, but like that, that's become like part of the experience for me now. And, and because I don't have unless like I convince myself that both of my cats are rooting for the Blazers, like I don't really have anyone else. So it's it's really fun. <laughs> it's become a huge part of, of my life for sure. So you're saying there's not a, like a, a like a bastion of, of like Blazers bars out in, in, on, in New York? You know, I've actually looked it up and there aren't. Um, I, I also haven't been super proactive. Like someone like Neela is like super proactive, super outgoing. And I'm not saying I'm not like that, but she's just been great about like, you know, wherever she is, like rounding up Blazers fans and just like getting everyone out. Um, I'm, but again, like, I, as I mentioned, I sort of grew up just like being okay and like being like used to being the only one watching the game. So like, I'll still go out and like watch a game by myself or I'll go with a friend or whatnot. Um, but yeah, I haven't really like seeked out Blazers fans as much as I probably should have. But if there are any in New York, like hit me up at Roombos on Twitter. Like I'm more than happy <laughs> to join. I promise that's not a shameless plug, but like 
I'm more than happy to watch a Blazers game anytime, anywhere with anyone. What do people say about Portland who are not in Portland? Like after all the excitement of this summer between, you know, the Knicks and the Nets, you know, all that has probably calmed down or maybe it hasn't. Like, is anybody paying attention to Portland much or or, the West Coast, much less Portland? I think it's uh, so if you're talking about the East Coast, I mean, I think basketball has become, you know, if you think like 10 years ago, like basketball was very much like, okay, the East Coast game happens and then the West Coast games happen. And now that the Western Conference is so powerful and not, but beyond that, now that basketball has just become like a, a countrywide global sport almost, um, everyone's paying attention to every single team. It's very, like very few West Coast teams get quote unquote slept on. Um, and especially the Blazers after making the Western Conference Finals. I think the general consensus of not just East Coast fans, but I think everyone who is not a Blazers fan is like they just have a lot of respect and they like the Portland team. I think it's everyone's sort of like second or third favorite team just to sort of watch and appreciate. I think everyone loves Damian Lillard now. I think like if you think three years ago, four years ago, like he was definitely getting slept on. Now he's like not. You know, I think he's almost a, a basically a lock to make the all-star team from here on out until he, fingers crossed, starts his decline, which I hope doesn't happen anytime soon. <laughs> but I think just people love his attitude. I think there's always, like, the jokes about his rap career and stuff like that. But I think people just love him, his attitude, the way he plays the game. And it's, it's hard not to love. I was actually talking to my – I was chatting with my Warriors fans in our thread, and I was sort of – I forget how it came up, but – uh, we were discussing like Steph and Dame and I was just sort of like if Damian Lillard was on the Warriors you all would like universally love him the same way if Steph was on the, the on the Blazers like I would universally love him as well and and they all like pretty much agreed so I think very much so like people really like the Blazers they like what they have going I think that culture thing that everyone seems to write about uh, it's it very much like people buy into that and, and they've seen the results of it after uh, last year's Western Conference Finals so I think it's just a general sense of respect for the team and a general enjoyment watching the team. Awesome. Well, guys, it's time to start talking about the game itself because the Blazers have six games under their belt. It's been an interesting ride. Right now, they are 3-3. Three and three. Since the last time we talked, Dan, they dropped the game in San Antonio. They beat Oklahoma City and then mm-hmm. a heartbreaker last <sighs> night against the league-leading Philadelphia 76ers. So how are we feeling after six games in about uh, who the Blazers are, I guess we'll start with. I mean, the, when you look at this team so far, is if you're surprised by it, I, I think I'd be surprised. There's the hiccups with integrating new guys into the roster. There's, you know, the, the, even before Zach went down, there was the question you and I talked about all summer, which was, they are paper thin in the front court. And if anything happens to anybody, they're going to be in trouble. And, you know, Whiteside and Collins going down. I don't think anybody foresaw that. Um, but to, to be as, as as solid as they were against Philadelphia, in a sense, um, basically playing a, a, a slightly bigger than, than normal YMCA team, uh, I, I thought they did pretty well. And you know me, I am not a moral victories kind of person, but to 
play the way they did in that game particularly, um, I, I think says something about this team. And obviously the the last play we'll talk about a little bit. Um, the biggest thing to me is, and I, I tweeted it out last night, is Damian Lillard is a no doubt, surefire, absolute MVP candidate. Not a dark horse, not some cute little story, not going to get some votes. He's an MVP candidate. If I had to, if I had to look at it right now, and I had to vote, my list would probably look a, a, a top three of probably unbelievably Cat, Dame, and Luca. Like the the, the value that those guys, and, and they, each one of them for the same reason. Without those guys on those teams, those teams are in a world that I didn't want to describe. Like the the immense value, and what's up with MVP is it's the most valuable player. Without those guys on those teams taking those shots, hitting just ridiculous play after ridiculous play after ridiculous play, it it, it speaks to to Dame and you and I have talked about this for years now. How the hell does this guy add something new to his game, get more efficient, get better, tighten something up year after year after year? It is so unbelievably rare. And the Blazers have been blessed with two guys like this, and and they're at different levels, that a guy comes back every year with something new, something better. Now, Wes Matthews is the other guy who went from a non-shooter, just a defender, to a guy who could shoot, put the ball down, take a guy off the break, hit off the dribble shots, post guys up like every year or something new with Dame. It's literally something new every single year. And I don't think people fully, fully grasp how just unbelievably uncommon that is. Okay. I want to talk about what Dame has added to his game in just a sec, but I want to give Varun a chance to weigh in on what are your overall impressions uh, of the team so far, six games in. I mean, it's been very exciting for both positive and negative reasons. Um, just like a lot going on, I guess. Uh, you know, three and three is like fine. Obviously, that's like the definition of fine being 500. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, like I'm not you know, I would be more like they've been in every game. And that's been really exciting to watch. Um, obviously, the injury stuff has been pretty miserable, as Dan mentioned, like that we are paper thin in the front court, uh, rolling out Scal out there, starting Mario Hazonia, who all of whom have played very well. But like, you know, going up against a team like the 76ers, I think uh, Terry, you're the one who tweeted out like we got outscored 80 to 40 or something like that in the uh, inside the paint. Um, that's scary, and and that's not great. Uh, you can definitely tell that like the the rim protection is just not there. And even when Zach Collins was around, you know, there wasn't particularly like that strong. So. You know, I'm really encouraged by some of the things I do see, though. Like, some of the wings have integrated a little bit quicker than I thought. I think Rodney Hood, before his injury, which I hope he's okay. It sounds like he's probable for tomorrow's game, I hope, mm-hmm. or the Warriors game. Um, you know, he seems to, like, really be embracing the starting role. Looks really good, especially uh, last night. He looked ex- exceptionally well. Or played exceptionally well, excuse me. I've really liked Mario Hazonia's play, personally. I-, I think even before last night, he was doing, like, little things that I really, really liked. Um I also didn't realize he was such a a big body, I guess. Like he must mm-hmm. be like six six, six seven, six eight. Uh he just like like him guarding Ben Simmons was like really refreshing to watch. Like he was just sort of like I mean, he's not like a perfect defender, he's not like a greatest defender, but like he went toe to toe with him realistically and he, he plays really within himself. I it was interesting. I was thinking about Mario Hazonia a little bit today and it really reminds me of like what they wanted Evan Turner to be. 
Um, just yeah. like someone who can like really run the offense off the bench, uh, play within himself, which I don't think Evan Turner would do. Like he would like he would he would try to run the offense, get the first look. If it broke down, he would just sort of go one on one. And Mario seems to be a lot more calm, a lot more like within the offensive sets, I guess. And then like when he has an opening, like he just has this like pretty explosive first step and will just like get to the rim. So it's really encouraging to watch him. I think Kent Bazemore, there's always one exciting play per game that he's going to give you on defense. Um, also, speaking of Kent Bazemore and Ronnie Hood, I'm really encouraged to see them shooting more threes and being more comfortable shooting threes. I think last year we saw a lot of like Rodney Hood pump fake one dribble step in and then pull up. Rodney has been like a lot more like he'll he might pump fake and then dribble, but then he'll step back. Or he'll just catch and shoot, and you see a lot more of that comfort there. Same thing with Kent Bazemore. It's almost like Terry Stotts like said, "Don't cross this line and shoot from behind this line, otherwise I'll put you on the bench." So, I think just like just there's there's a lot of like small encouraging signs, but then like when you lose a guy like Zach Collins, when Hassan Whiteside goes down, and all of a sudden you feel, I mean, you have knock on wood, you have your two all stars. This is not a Warriors situation, thank God, knock on wood, but it still feels like, okay, three and three, just, it seems so much more daunting as opposed to maybe we, maybe the Blazers get out of, or get out of that game against Philadelphia with a win and four and two feels a little bit more comforting, or maybe they, maybe they escaped with a win in San Antonio or, you know, whatnot, and they're five and one. So, but then again, they could also be two and four. They could easily be one and five. So I'm happy with where they are. Like I'm, I guess I'm okay with it, but it does seem like there's a long road ahead. That's going to be really, really tough, especially in a Western conference where there's literally no easy outs. I'm really glad you, you, you brought up uh, Hazonia and hood because those are the two guys that I think I wanted to talk about more than anybody else here. And you said something about Mario that I think is really pointed and that's doing the little things. And it was on display last night against the 76ers. And, and you're right. He played Ben Simmons to a standstill for the most part. He got caught sleeping a few times mm-hmm. on some back cuts, but he bodied him up. I mean, Mario is a very, very, let's put it, I want to frame it this way. When I talk about Zach Collins' development and how he needs to learn how to use his body, Mario is like the perfect example of that. Mario uses his body in def- offensively and defensively better than a lot of guys that I've seen that, that kind of have his reputation where he's kind of yeah. been disappointing or a cast off because of where he was picked. And like, if you watch him offensively, he gets his shoulder into guys in clear space without pushing off defensively. He, he blows up pick and rolls. He, he gets a, a, he gets above screens or below screens without fouling, but also enough to, to knock a guy off balance defensively he puts his body into somebody just the right way to get them uncomfortable and those things aren't going to show up in the box score per se but they do because simmons all of a sudden is missing layups you know things like that really show and as far as rodney hood goes hood is shooting the lights out yeah. i mean he's shooting absolutely corner threes phenomenal. dan corner threes mm-hmm. we've been talking uh, he, about that you've you brought that up uh yeah. last year repeatedly the Blazers were the worst in the league at corner threes, not only in in um, completion, but attempts. I mean, it Rodney right now is seven of 12 on corner threes, and it feels like he's, you know, 40 of 40. It seems like every single time that man has caught the ball in the corner, it's just been cash money, go the other way. And the other thing he, he's done, and he's changed a little bit, is have you noticed how many threes Rodney has taken with, you know, a step or two behind the three-point line? 
like a little bit deeper than than like toes on the line kind of deal. I feel like so everybody has defense. expanded their from where they're shooting from. They're like, well, Dame can do mm-hmm. it. I can take an extra <laughs> step back. Yeah, Tolliver has said the same thing. Tolliver has said that you know it's something he's worked on, and this that extra space is affording him some some room to attack too. If a guy has to close out an extra two steps, now he can like Varun was saying that that pump fake and little side step, side dribble. It, now he just steps right to the line. He had one against Philly that was just perfect. The 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 guy ran out of him on the left wing, gave a hard pump fake, a little right hand dribble, step to the right hand side, pull up cash. And it looked like he'd been doing it forever. And the production that we're getting from Rodney is exactly what we expected. That's the thing that matters the most right now, I think, with this Blazers team, is that you look at what Portland has had on the wing for the last couple of years. And this isn't the Besperge Mo in, in chief, but I said this on Twitter the other night. The difference between having a guy that you hope makes a shot or is capable of making a shot versus a guy that you expect to make the shot. And Rodney Hood, you expect him to make that shot. And that does a lot for both sides. On the offensive side, Dame's confident enough in, you know, in the push-up to uh in the Dallas game to find Rodney Hood late in the game and deliver him the ball over and over and over again. And Hood capitalizes. Now defensively, now you can't cheat inside if Dame penetrates. We saw it against Philadelphia when Dame penetrates inside and swings that pass to Simons. With guys on the floor that spread the floor, all of a sudden you have to worry about everybody. Have you noticed much actual double teaming of Dame happening? A little bit here or there. I've seen a few traps that are being blitzed. But coaches and players right now, that's been like the one like, you know, silver lining here with with the smaller lineups when they've got five no-doubt shooters on the floor. Dame has an awful lot of space to work with. Like there's, yeah. there's a ton of room for him to maneuver through. And if he splits the double with basically a five out set, he, he's getting to the rim and he's going to be able to finish. I was going to say, I feel like every time uh, this season, at least I feel like every time they've sent two at Dame, especially like when it's a late clock situation or late game situation. I, I mean, even last night, the last or the second last play of the game, I guess, unfortunately, but mm-hmm. they sent two at Dame and he just blew by both of them. And it's open three, open three, open three. And I feel like that's been a very, very common occurrence where coaches are like pretty hesitant to blitz Dame now because there are, you have Rodney Hood, you have Anthony Tolliver, you have Simons, you have CJ McCollum, just like all on the different parts of the three point line, just like ready to go. And it feels like Dame takes one dribble. Obviously he has an amazing first step, one dribble already in the key. And then it's like, all right, which guy am I going to feed to drill this three that's wide open? So it, it's, I think Dan said it really well where it's like, you know, you expect Rodney Hood to make that shot. You expect Anthony Simons to make that shot. Um, and so I would hope that you're going to see a little bit less of it moving forward. And that's that's really the key. I mean, it was obviously highlighted in, in the playoffs when guys just said, we, we don't care about Mo and Chief. They can shoot all they want. We just don't care. When you've got guys up and down the roster now, and this is where, you know, them making the playoffs and, 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 and these guys delivering there mean more. But when you have a year's worth of film on guys, and that's, I don't expect Rodden to shoot 52% three. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd love it. He's going to have some aggression to the mean. But Dame's shooting 40%. CJ's shooting 38%. Zach is shooting 43%. Anthony's shooting 42%. Baysmore, as rough as his shooting may have looked, is shooting 38%. Tolliver's finding his shot. Like, there's... 
at least three, usually four, sometimes five guys on the floor. And when you've got guys as shifty as Damon CJ and hell, Mario, Mario's got a great first step and he's able to kick and find guys. And when these guys have this room to operate, it doesn't just help the guys in the perimeter, it helps the guys inside. Roddy Hood gets a mismatch in the mid post now. Who are you, you going to double down on him or are you going to let him take that mid post? Well, guess what? He feasts on that mid post. He's going to put in work down there. Scal has been fantastic on the short rolls. Like the amount of space guys have now to work with, it's it's something that we haven't had in Portland really since the the, the Lillard Aldridge days. So we've talked a lot about a lot of the positives, which is awesome because six games in, <laughs> they're three and three. The Blazers are looking at injuries. They're looking at games mm-hmm. that they had in hand and then they didn't anymore. We will transition to that in a minute. But I want to talk about the thing that has really stuck out to me this so far this season and is actually like wor- very quite worrisome to me. And that is the need for Dame to bail everybody out in the fourth quarter. Like I want uh, his, I want Damian Lillard's MVP race to look like when Steph Curry was so good that he got his team up by 30 and got to sit in the fourth quarter. That's what I want to see when Damian Lillard wins the MVP. I don't want to see him working so hard and dragging everybody across the finish line every night. So can you expand on what's going on there? I, yeah. I mean, I, I was just going to say, I, I like, I, I hear you. I want the same for Dame. I want the Blazers to be up 30, but I just, I feel like it's fair. I mean, like, it's just unrealistic with this roster and with this team. I mean, every night's going to be a fight. I almost don't like, I don't know. I don't view it as so much as like Dame bailing the team out every night. I mean, like, I, I think we're just talking about words here and like, I'm, I'm just skewing it a little bit, but it's really just like, I still feel comfortable with him doing it because it feels like he is picking his spots a lot. I mean, not even a lot better. Like I think last year he would just sort of turn it on when he needs to and then turn it off when he doesn't have to. Or just like I think a good example was I believe it was the OKC game where I mean, he hit a couple threes down the stretch. But like I feel like there was a stretch there where he had six assists in a row. Yep. Um, And it was like it wasn't so much like him just like, I mean, you think about three years ago, four years ago, there were so many times when he would just drive to the basket and like try to make something happen or try to hit a step back three. And it just felt so out of rhythm. Didn't feel right at all. Now the game is just sort of coming to him where like, and he has, as Hassan White would say, Whiteside would say, like he has shooters. Uh, He can sort of just like let the game come to him, see what's open, see what's the best option. And those options to kick, you know, as much as I loved Mo Harkless, as much as I loved Al Farouk it's not really, I mean, it's a, those are major upgrades on offense when you talk about Kent Bazemore, when you talk about Rodney Hood. So I don't view it so much as like, you know, we're putting a lot of pressure on Dame. I think this is just like, he's the best player. He's your point guard. This is just what he's going to have to do on a night to night basis. Yeah, I, I'm, probably, I'm probably in between you and Tara. Um, looking at Dame's fourth quarter numbers, he leads the league in fourth quarter scoring 12 a game, mm-hmm. 12 points a game in the fourth quarter. He's shooting 61% from the floor, 57% from three. That's just, that's, that's, that's NBA 2K God mode. Like the badges are, it's all green beans. The badges are on. (laughs) He's straight cooking dudes. And what he has been able to accomplish as a scorer has been insane. He is virtually unstoppable right now. And and that's what I mean when I talk about him as, as an MVP candidate. 
the thing that, that if we're talking about some of the negatives are, I feel like and we said this last year, CJ got off to a rough start last year and his shooting is starting to coming around now, but there's three or four, maybe five shots a night right now from CJ where, uh, you know, if, especially on this road trip, you know, Joe and I and, and a couple of our producers and stuff, we're all sitting in the control room watching the games together. And we all, what the hell are you doing? Like, just, it almost feels like he's had these moments of like, hey, I need to get my shine. And it, it, it just kind of feels like it's outside the offense. It feels like it's off rhythm. And it doesn't feel like he's on the same page with guys, which is kind of weird. Um, Can you expand a little bit more on how that comes across? How you, how, what it is you're picking up that makes you feel that that's the situation? Yeah, it's, it's, it is, the thing is, is, is CJ's a shot creator. It's one of the best shot creators in the league. And so I know he's going to get those shots and he's a tough shot taker and a tough shot maker. So I, I give him a, 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 a probably more leeway than, than, than I do most guys around the league. But there are times when, you know, you know the Blazers are struggling and instead of trying to get to his spots, he's, he's thinking more about, I need to get a shot. Now, I don't know that necessarily it's true, but that's how it translates across, across the screen. Like, his patented, you know, is that little hezzy right hand, right to left, blow by, get to that free throw line or get to that elbow. And that, that's teams are scouting that. They, they want to take that away. It's one of the few times when you'll see guys kind of come down to that free throw line extended to try to take that away. It's the same thing teams try to do to Chris Paul, to Russell Westbrook when he was hitting that shot. Because they're so good at that shot, you want to try to take that away from him in particular. And I feel like he's forced some shots. The, the one that sticks out in my mind is the – the one against San Antonio uh, late in the game where he got called for the foul on Aldridge, the shot before he got called for that foul, it was an off-balance, double-contested 18-footer early in the clock, and you could see it coming. You could tell when he got the ball, he was not giving it up. And Dame was absolutely cooking at that time, and it just seemed to really mess with the flow. And it didn't seem like CJ was on the same page with the team. And I'm not saying that Dame needs to take every shot, but it felt like when I watched it, the Dame, or CJ was sitting there looking like, hey, I want a part of this too, as opposed to playing within the, within what was going on in that game. And he's had a handful of those every single game. And it's just been kind of weird to see because usually him and Dame are simpatico. It, and it's not his turn, your turn, his turn, your turn. It's they, they just know how to feed off of each other. And it feels like CJ hasn't really fed off Dame and Dame – is still trying to keep CJ involved and it's not necessarily reciprocating around the team. Does that make sense? So I think what you're saying is that you're seeing CJ going uh, to extraordinary efforts to get a shot off, but not necessarily getting to the shots that he is most used to taking and being successful with. And as a result, uh, he's also not distributing as much or uh, feeding off to the guys who are having a hot hand. Yeah, and that, that's that's certainly the, probably the largest part of it. But it almost feels like even even if he does get to his spots, it's like opponents are trying to take those things away, and he's not going to his counter, counter, counter. Like it just it just feels like he's forcing a shot sometimes to because he wants to get a shot up. And that's not necessarily something we see from CJ. Now, every 20 point per game score is going to have shots like that. You know, it's just it's just how it happens in the league because they don't average 20 plus a game by being passive. So I I just I I let that part of it go. 
but there's these things that kind of stick out. And it, I'd say the same about Dame. If Dame was consistently missing those 35 footers, you know what I mean? Like, unless you're Dame, unless you're Steph or hell, even Trey Young, taking that shot is not an advisable shot. But we saw Dame do it against Philly. Ben Simmons backs up off him. He's like, okay, cool. I'm going to pull from 34. You better come the hell out of here and guard me. It, 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 it's not necessarily a shot that Dame's trying to get a shot. It's about, hey, you better come out here to open up the, the offense a little bit. Also, this shot is definitely in my bag. So th- there's there's a couple different points to it. When CJ's been, been sourcing some of these shots, it's been less about getting something in that moment for the team or to try to do something and more about I need to get my shots up. And I, I know that sounds that's a, bad. That's a lot to um, to draw from watching the game. I know. I know, <laughs> I, 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 I know what it sounds like. If you're seeing something similar too, or what? Are, what are your thoughts on um, you know on CJ's uh, play start to the start of the season? Yeah, I mean, he's always. I mean, he's never been like. You never think of CJ as like a distributor just to start. You know what I mean? He's always uh, two guards don't are, are not known for that in general. I mean, point play. Um, I, I sort of agree with Danny. I mean, like I think a little, or Dan, excuse me. I think a little bit like there's, I don't know. It, he's just an enigma, quite honestly. Like mm-hmm. I, I enjoy watching CJ. He's an incredible shot creator. I don't look into it too much. I mean, I do think there are times when he feels like he needs to take over a little bit. And I think that's natural. Like, you know, especially when it's only, especially when it's just him on the court, even when Dame's on the court, like he goes on that court and thinks he's the best player, which you should, if you're a top tier mm-hmm. player, like you should have that mentality. That being said, I, I do agree with Dan that there are times where like, you know, there's an extra dribble here. There's a, a look off here. There's like a, maybe a guy that was open and you know, it could be a multitude of things. It could be like, you know, maybe he's just not used to playing with these guys as much where he has a bunch of shot, uh, shot makers that he can, you know, hand off to or he can defer to, and he's used to, you know, playing with like the Alfred Caminos of the world, the more heartlessness of the world. Where like, yeah, maybe you don't trust those guys as much, and maybe your, you know, forced created shot is better than, you know, their sort of semi-covered yeah. shot. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to read too much into it. It's only six games, uh, but at the same time, like, you know, hopefully, the the hope is that. You know, he's watching Dame, he's seeing him distribute, he's seeing all these guys hit shots, and he gets more comfortable with it. And, and that's the thing, Terry, and what what Ruben kind of hit on there is that th- this is all still new with, with this new personnel mm-hmm. groupings. And offensively, you and I have talked about this off-air plenty of times. Offensively, I'm giving this team a month to try to work things out, figure out where things are going to be, who's going to be where, what the timing looks like. Th- th- that was kind of always my, my thing. Was let, let them get 20 games under their belt before trying to really analyze this team, trying to really break down, okay, what's different, what's new, what's working, what's not, what needs to change. But it's just something, it wasn't just me. Like, you know, when these shots have happened, I look over at at Joe or I look over at my producer or I look at the guys that are clipping highlights for us and they all are looking at me the same way. Like, what the hell was that? And it just, it's something, I don't, I don't know. You just, Mm -hmm. you just feel more than anything else. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't feel like CJ's in, in like, doing his CJ thing. You know yeah. what I mean? He feels off a little bit and I, I, I can't quite figure out what it is. And, well, and, and you both brought up, you know, the fact that he has a whole new cast of characters around mm-hmm. him 
and yeah. uh, you know and and the trust factor of like i you know i have a high confidence in my ability to get this one off not sure how uh you know mario's gonna be able to receive it in this the only place that i could possibly get it to him right now mm -hmm. so they're still working out like where to receive things like how high how low you know all that stuff well um this has been uh this is such a great discussion because we, we actually have basketball to talk about um but one thing you brought up <laughs> earlier dan was that uh dame has added new things to his game so um, we haven't actually talked a lot about Dame on for the last several weeks because we've been trying to get to know the new players. So let's go a little bit farther about Dame. What have you seen that he has added to his game this season? Couple different things off the bounce, particularly as he goes to the rim. He's he's worked on his footwork a ton, uh, changing his timing, uh, where he takes off from, trying to get guys off rhythm because guys know where where I mean th there's something that that probably a lot of people don't know about is that certain guys have certain launch points. They, they know where they're going to take off from. And there's two things that Dame has changed with his footwork. He's disguised his footwork to make it look a little bit more like he's going to go to the rim. And instead he keeps his dribble alive. I, I don't know if you've, you've noticed Dame do a little bit of the Steve Nash kind of keep his dribble alive going underneath the rim and kind of resetting the offense because it's not there. The other part of it is he's at a, a, a bit of a Euro step and that kind of over the shoulder reverse uh mm -hmm. particularly coming from the right to the left side those are things we did we haven't seen damian lillard do those are th those are new like those are those are very fine mechanical things that spend to, to develop those and, and to execute as well as he has been um i believe it was the dallas yeah it was dallas game because it was over christophs he had the one where he drove the lane on the right hand side and kind of hop step a little bit of a hop Euro and went all the way to the other side and went reverse over his head over Kristaps. And I was like, Oh, that's, <laughs> that's new. Like that's, that's, that's high level execution. And Kristaps isn't, you know, the best shot blocker of all time. He's still seven he's foot tall. three. Yeah. He, and he's got arms for days to be able to finish over him in that instance. That's what Dame had to do. He couldn't go right at his chest. Now it's, it, if it's Rudy Gobert, Dame goes right at his chest because right. he has he some sort of like magical power. Yeah. yeah, that's I, one I don't, of our I, favorite I, things on this podcast. Varun, <laughs> is Damian Lillard dunking on Rudy Gobert. It's it one makes, of my favorite. It's one of my favorite things as well. I promise. It makes no sense when you when you talk about physics, but somehow, some way, he just manages to do it over and over again. It's insane. <laughs> But the keeping the dribble alive, uh, it's keeping guys more active. And the the other part of that is, is again, off the drive, how many one-handed passes have you seen Damian Lillard throw this year already? I don't know. I, how many have I seen? More than I've probably seen him throw in the rest of his career combined. It's It's been insane. Like The best passers in the league have that one-handed pass passing ability off the drive it's an incredibly difficult skill uh not only are you factoring your, your momentum the arm angle you have to get at to put the ball in the right place now guys like ben simmons lebron james luka Doncic, they are otherworldly with this skill it's, it's what elevates their their ability beyond just their vision it's their actual passing skill and dame in a, a great example was that right-handed, one-handed hook pass that he threw to Simons on the drive. And you've got to give Anthony some credit there because when we talked about this too a little bit, Tara, like knowing where guys are going to be and understanding where you need to be as a shooter and feeling that rhythm, as Dame drove that paint, 
Anthony was higher in the corner than all the way down. Mm-hmm. And as he sees Dame gets deeper, he sinks deeper. And he, and he increases that angle to allow Dame to get that to him. And to Dame's credit, he gets to the point to get the defense to commit. And then he throws a one-handed, right-handed bounce, or rat pass with his, you know, that, that's right on the money for Ant. And if that if, pass is low, if it's high, if it's if it if it, you know, it's either in the stands or Ant's got to kind of jump and gather it, 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 the shot doesn't get off. But it's exactly where it needs to be. And those those soft skills that he's adding to his game are elevating his game much more than people probably give him credit for. What great descriptions. So keeping the dribble alive. So looking like he's driving, but then continuing to dribble because maybe a little shoulder see fake. What he wanted. Yep. One handed passes. And then like sort of some kind of twisting mechanics going on underneath the basket, which it's his has... footwork. It, it, it's, it's his footwork when he gets in the lane. Uh, one of the things Ant said after his, his first game, um, remember he struggled finishing in the paint. He says, I need to change my, I need to figure out where my launch point is. I need to figure out, I, I need to be, it's about being what foot you need to be on, where you need to be against certain defenders, how you need to get to that spot in order to have the highest success play. And the the best guys in the league understand that we, we heard Kent Bazemore has been picking CJ and Dame's brains about their footwork to understand, you know, if you see some guys that are good at it, let's figure out what they've got. And, and Dame has added this ability to shift and Varun highlighted this earlier. Dame's first step is probably one of the most underrated explosive athletic abilities in the league. Dame's first step of that little rocker left to right. That's he just shoots out of a cannon and to be able to, to accelerate like that and then decelerate in the paint. Like, Anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you got a chance to go to the gym, try and take off as fast as you can, put the ball down, and come to a complete stop on one step. Tell me how your knee feels. Because to be honest, it, it it's next to impossible for just everyday people. And he makes it look easy. And he, well, to, to decelerate like that and then get a defender, get, you know, raise your chest up to make it look like you're going up for a shot and give that little shoulder fake and then go into a Euro step. Like that's high, high, high level execution. And like, I hate to give the Lakers any shout outs here, but did you guys see Alex Caruso's Euro step dunk? I yeah. am Alex Caruso's like number 500 fan. Like, I, mean, I know there's a lot more uh, Alex Grosso fans than me, but I really do like him. <laughs> but the, the athleticism and the power needed to come off of a Euro step and dunk is absolutely insane. And when you see those kind of plays, I think everybody sees that dunk and they're like, oh, that's incredible. But all of the time and effort that goes into getting the timing right, getting your balance right, knowing how, when, where to put your feet so that you don't take off too soon, you don't take off too early, so where you you hit that apex at the right time, at the right place to be able to finish over a guy or through a guy, Dame has added that that kind of, not necessarily Euro step dunk, but the the timing with his, his, his acceleration and deceleration with where he gets his feet inside the paint to keep defenders off guard because guys scout this. They know what moves you want to go to. And it's just those little things on top of his already just unbelievable skill level takes him to that, 
that level. That's the level we always talk about, Terrell, when we talk about can Dane be in that MVP conversation? Can he add those things to where he fine-tunes something just enough to truly get it? And it looks like he has. Hey, Varun, as somebody who's in one of those big markets, uh, what do you think the chances are for Damien to be um, – MVP. Well, let's either all let's we can talk about both All Star or MVP. So let's talk about All Star first because that comes sure. up first. Is he getting enough buzz and talk? Do you think? I mean, I think All Star is a lock. I think after looking at the past couple of years and just, I mean, look, I mean, voted lot, in. Oh, voted Sorry. in. Sorry, I always um, forget that. That's my my in my heart of hearts. That's the thing I want for him so bad is for him. To there's get no stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say there's no Steph, and that helps a ton because that guy gets a lot of votes, and people love that guy. I think after last year, too, uh, after the shot against OKC, against uh, just like how awesome he played in the playoffs and the fact that they get to the Western Conference Finals, plus his marketing team and all that stuff, like, yeah, he's definitely on the map. People talk about him. I think I saw someone tweet um, today, like, you know, with Steph, like, I, I think it was some Raptors fan just saying, like, with Steph out of the league, like, Kyle Lowry has been the best point guard in the league this year and someone quote tweeted and was like have you did damien lillard die or something uh like because he's been unbelievable so voting wise like I, I think he definitely has the fan recognition he definitely has uh, the notoriety at this point to be voted in uh in terms of mvp it, like he's i don't disagree with dan like he's been playing unbelievable and it's not like a cute story like he is legitimately the reason this team has at least three wins the problem is in order for someone, I mean, the, the small market does come into play a tiny bit in the sense that he can be unbelievable. But if this team is, you know, borderline just above 500 ish, 42, 43 wins, it becomes a lot tougher of a case. Now, if the team is now five and one, if they somehow escape San Antonio with a win, uh, if they somehow, you know, if they had maintained this, uh, if they had beaten the Sixers, I think there's a lot more buzz and a lot more discussion around, you know, the Blazers being five and one. Why are they five and one? Damian Lillard is the reason they're five. The narrative. The narrative builds and you have a lot more momentum. So I think all-star wise, like I certainly think it's a possibility that he gets uh, voted in. I'd have to like think about who else is in the Western Conference in terms of the guard position. But I think it's like it, it should be a, a high certainty at least. Um, and then for the MVP stuff, like they're gonna ha- there's gonna have to be something. There's gonna have to they're gonna have to rip off six games. You know, like look, I'm not ever rooting for anyone to get injured. But suppose the Blazers go on and win the next six games without Zach Collins, with Hassan Whiteside, you know, missing a game or two here and there, with Rodney Hood possibly missing games. If they can go on like a six like a six game stretch where they go five and one or a ten game stretch where they go eight and two, people are going to be talking about it. And that's the thing. You need to have that extra thing that it can't just be like thirty seven and and four here and like you know left and right, which is all our amazing all our amazing stats. But there needs to be like like eight and two stretch. There needs to be this. Oh, the Blazers are the number two seed right now. There needs to be that something else. And right now, unfortunately, we don't have that something else. So All Star, I would say a lock. MVP, he'll be in that one to five range somewhere. Um, but with so many other good players like Luka Doncic, as Dan mentioned, even the those two guys in in purple and gold down south, or I'm not I'm in New York, but on the West Coast down south. Uh, even those two guys, I mean, you know, you could definitely mention Anthony Davis in the MVP conversation for sure as well. So it, it, it just, it becomes tougher and tougher, but hopefully if they have that stretch, we could definitely be a, a candidate for an MVP top three position, hopefully. 
And and that's the thing, the, the, the narrative, you, you hit on it. If Portland somehow, if Dane bails out Portland in San Antonio and Anthony Simons' game winner is the, 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 the last note against the 76ers and Portland's mm-hmm. five and one, the the narrative machine would start would start kind of cranking out. And this has been James Harden's biggest complaint, which shut up, James. The <laughs> the narrative of Giannis last year, small market team, doesn't get any smaller. And Milwaukee starts hot. Giannis is an absolute destroyer of worlds. And that narrative carries throughout the season. And Varun's absolutely right. If Portland rattles off five and one, six and zero, oh, uh, eight and two run here early on with Kawhi getting load managed, with the Lakers possibly sitting LeBron or AD, excuse me, here or there, um, the Timberwolves having to actually play somebody that that is decent, you know, and and Cat's numbers fall down, and the Timberwolves start taking a few losses, um, then I think it becomes easier for that that narrative to really start going because if you're presented with Luca, Cat, Dame, let's just say that those are the, the options right now. If you want to put uh, LeBron and AD in there, I'm not going to fault you. Let's say those those are your top 5. And the fatigue over LeBron is is gone and the the Laker fatigue is something that just kind of pops up and nobody wants to do that. If you're presented with the the young guy who is fun and Luca or a Minnesota team with Cat, who has the stronger narrative? Like normally with these kind of situations, you you take those and go, who's the guy that's that's really put in the work? And this is where you you get the longevity award, right? And we see that with the the All Star candidates. Like if there's two there's there's two guys up for the last spot. And one of them's a 10 year vet, the Mike Conley award, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if, if, if it's down to two guards, are you going to give it to the, the guy who's put in the 10 years? Or are you going to give it to the rookie? The rookie's going to get slighted every time. And I think that's where, if there is going to be a chance, it'll be there for Dane because he does have the track record now. Absolutely. Okay, well, before we make any more uh, uh, Laker references and turn this into a Laker podcast, <laughs> thing of nightmares, um, I want to move on because we do have a few questions. And um, Dan, you're on a tear tonight, so we got to try to keep these, you know. Short, I'm sorry. What? That's totally fine. I was super glad to let you go on about Damian Lillard because I realize sometimes we take so much of what we know about Damien for granted for having watched him and for having been Mm -hmm. a fan of the team that he leads. Like we don't spend a lot of time pausing to actually talk about him. Uh, because like I said, it's just part of, he's part of the air. It's who he is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's part of being a blazer fan is you understand everything about Damien. And like, you know, when I talk to people who are not blazer fans or who live in different parts of the country and they, you know, they always say, yeah, I really like Damian Lillard. And I just go like, Duh. I totally believe that you like <laughs> Damian Lillard. But I don't think you know what it means to like Damian Lillard. <laughs> like, I don't think, I don't know that you, you know, know exactly what he means, not only to the team and to the organization, but to the entire community that what, everything that he's done in Portland and in mm-hmm. his extended communities as well. So I was happy to let you go on about Damian Lillard, but we got to get focused on these last okay. few questions. Short, short and concise. And I know you can do it because you do have like a 22 <laughs> minute show as well. Um, yep. 
but I'll let you spread your wings in this one. So the first question comes from a San Diego Blazer fan, and this is regards to the last play of the game in Philadelphia, which we've already talked about a little bit. Um, but this question is specifically, uh, are you going to talk about this on the podcast? And then they uh, quote tweeted a tweet from Positive Residual that said, here's another look at Furkan Kormatz's game-winning shot. It seems increasingly likely to me that Anthony Tolliver should have switched as opposed to being in this area. So this is an opportunity to kind of like break down that last uh, play of the game. Although I want to say one more thing before we go on. I keep thinking, and I maybe this is probably bad that I keep thinking this, but I keep thinking if Anthony, like, and not that he would have thought about this at all, but like if it, like, if he'd had to collect the ball a little bit more and take a little less time on the clock, 1.5 extra seconds to do it. Oh, how different it would have been. Oh. Yeah. But nothing takes away from the fact that, that was a beautiful play and he made it. And like for that second, he won the game and showed and zero. This other thing happened. <laughs> okay. So the final play, obviously the inbounds cork monster gets, gets clean free. In hearing the post-game comments and asking around, it the way the defense was set up, Dame was supposed to get over that screen uh, a little bit better and get to Cork Moss. Um, I, I know it looked bad, and I, I know with, with the account there, positive residuals was thought was that it would maybe Tolliver's job to help there. As I understand it, Tolliver was kind of playing the, the safety role because Portland had gotten beaten in the paint so much. And so the secondary option, if it was there, if the quick three wasn't there, was to get a quick two. And with Tolliver there, you give yourself your largest presence outside of Scal. And listen, I know Tolliver got beat by Al Horford. I know he got beat at the rim. But I swear to God, the more I watch that guy, the more I sit there and go, he plays the most picture-perfect fundamentally sound defense I think I've ever seen a guy play. He doesn't ever yeah. bite on a pump fake. His hands are always in the right place. He doesn't get caught with the rip, the rip throughs or reaching in. Just sound. So I, I have a hard time believing that Anthony Tolliver blew a coverage so bad that he let a three-point shooter get open with a two-point lead with three seconds to go. Yeah, so, it's, it's it's funny you say that. I'm rewatching the play right now, and it, it's so much. When once you have given me that explanation, it makes so much more sense. You watch it, and obviously, we're listening. I'm sure listeners are listening to this, so I encourage you to pull up the play. But you watch it, and it seems like he immediately sinks into the paint. And mm -hmm. what you just mentioned, like I've been very surprised at how good. I, I don't want to say good necessarily, but how sound Anthony Tolliver has been on defense. Like he's very active in the pick and roll. Seems to know where he needs to be at any given time. Look, he's not going to shut anyone down by any means, but he seems to like he definitely knows what he's doing out there. So yep. to see him just like sink into the paint like that, it's clear that based on your explanation, it seems like that's right. Yeah, he was supposed to dive in there in case Al Horford slipped the screen, in case there was another down pick afterwards or a back screen afterwards. Um, and to be fair, like, you know, there's a little push off, which whatever, but like Dame gets sort of like caught in a weird position on the screen. Like he's definitely looks like he's trying to trail him. Um, but he gets sort of pushed into the Al Horford screen a little bit. It delays him a little bit. He does a good job of trying to, you know, recover and try to get a hand up. And I think he almost, it kind of looks like he may have fouled him. I won't, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. but like, but like, you know, he does make a really good effort to try to get out and it's just like a kind of a good shot and a well-designed play. So yeah, uh, not the worst like blown coverage by any means. It's just like a good shot at the end of the day. 
it's a really good sideline out of bounds after timeout play. Mm-hmm. Every good play in the NBA, you hold somebody. You get a good screen. You get a good pick off other motion that's not actually a pick. It's how well you disguise it. Those little rub plays that we see in both the NBA and the NFL, that's what you see all game long. It just happened to be in that situation they had a great play drawn up for the personnel the Blazers had. If Zach's healthy, if you know they can have a different lineup out there, perhaps they do something different. It, it, let's, let's put it that way. Like, let's say Zach's healthy or Hassan's healthy, and the Blazers don't give up 84 points in the paint. Yeah, that's something that would not have happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Like, So in the back of Brett Brown's mind and in the back of Terry Stotts' mind, the option to go for two here and push to overtime and to continue to try to trade baskets knowing that you have a likely success of getting two pretty much whenever you want it. I think that that had to be in Terry Stantz's mind. He had to sit there and go, we have to take away this too. And I, I, I get why that play looks bad because when Korkmaz catches that pass, dear God, there's nobody near him. And Dean does do a good job of closing out and trying to get there and try to get a contest up. But it's, it's rough to see, especially after the high of watching Ant knock that down in the corner and thinking yeah. he's got his first game winner. But in the grand scheme of things, I just think you kind of tip your cap to Philly and say, hell of a play, man. You know, I think about it. I think about the uh, the first Damian Lillard series ending shot, because remember that that came right after Chandler Parsons had just scored. Mm-hmm. And then they came down to the other end and had that inbound and the Blazers ended up scoring with point nine seconds left. So I figured it was probably less painful to have that happen in the sixth game of the season to you rather as opposed than to game six of the playoffs. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> but you know me, I absolutely just about anything. <laughs> okay, got another question. Uh, this one's also about bigs. It's the, the the theme of all of the questions. This one comes from Slater Smith at Slater J Smith. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of talk that the Blazers pull the trigger soon on that last roster spot because of injuries. Is that actually likely? Also, is it likely they tap Moses and bring him back from the G League early? Okay, so it's kind of a one 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 or the other kind of situation because they do only have the one roster spot. Um, If Moses comes up and he's active, he's obviously going to take up that roster spot. I got to think it's super unlikely that Moses is going to be brought up just because he has so much development that needs to happen. And like defensively, I trust him. It's the other side of the, yes. And those guys, those guys do too. To play, to play 10, 12 minutes a night. Yes. Defensively, the other side of the floor is the problem, and it, it's it's so raw right now though, that that that's what will keep him off the floor. Um, but defensively, he's got a natural acumen as as a rebounder, as a shot blocker, and as a monstrous human being. Moses is huge. He's I mean, tall. No, he's he's big too. I he's don't a, recall him. I don't. He's he's huge. Big. He's huge. <laughs> Trust me. I've been I mean, right. I haven't stood next to any of these guys, but I didn't. He's, when I think of him, I think of him as super tall and skinny. But anyway, he's, continue. He's kind. He's, he looks kind of gangly because his arms are so long. But he's he's a big boy. Um, but far be it from that. He's 
he's not going to be the one. And realistically, at this point, um, we'll know more once Zach's surgery goes through. But if Zach's having surgery, my expectation is he's out three months. Because even if the surgery only keeps him out two months, try not using your arm for two months. There's a lot of PT that goes into getting your shoulder right again. So my expectation is he's out 90 days. They need somebody. They need somebody bad. Um, and the the two options in my mind are the two best options are Joe Kim Noah and, and Kenneth Fareed. There are other guys out there. Steve DeWald had, a, had an article up on, on Blazers Edge today talking about different options. Dante Cunningham would be another guy that spreads the floor. But really, and I like I like Dante, but he's he's basically Anthony Tolliver. And they already have that guy. I think they need a guy who's more of a legit big body who can play in the paint, who when everybody's down, when everybody's out, can eat up minutes in the paint and not get shot over every single possession. Now, Tolliver did a great job to try to alter and bother shots. But, I mean, look at the guys that are leading the league in scoring right now. Look at the guys in the West that the Blazers are going to have to play. And it's sitting here looking at it and you're just like, Oh, that's weird. There's the Anthony Davises, the Carl Anthony Towns, and the Giannis's, and and hell, Luca, Luca's six seven. Like the, the teams are putting guys out on the floor right now that are capable, just absolute monster uh, stat box or, or star um, stat performers that are six seven, six eight, six nine, six ten, seven foot tall. The Blazers are putting out six eight, and that's just not a recipe for success over the long haul. And so they've got to get a body in there, if for nothing else, to contest some shots and be physical in there and at least try to alleviate some of the rebounding issues. And no one free can both do that. Well, I like Moses Brown, but I would uh, opt for Joe Kim Noah over him just because for Mm -hmm. being able to jump and slide right in, I would want somebody with more experience. What do you think, Varun? I, I lean towards Joakim Noah for sure. I also think like he'll just fit in with the team very, very seamlessly and very easily. Um, Powell too. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and that's the thing. Like you know, it, it is tough without Powell. It is tough. I mean, luckily Hassan Whiteside is coming back, as far as I understand, and like he's going to be healthy. And the thing, I, it's funny because you, I think you said Dan that you we want someone to just be able to take up space and like do that, and that's what Hassan is very much done. He's not necessarily the greatest defender by any means. He's not mm. necessarily like the that you know he's not like some kind of center superstar that you know you would want but like he uh, he gets a lot done just by being super tall and like taking up that space so he's a phone booth in the paint yeah absolutely and and that's the thing like he doesn't necessarily have like quick feet in terms of rotations but like he gets blocks just by being tall he gets rebounds just by being tall and that's kind of what the blazers need at this point they just need someone who's big and tall who can just take up space in the paint take up space for driving lanes and take away rebounds from you know anyone else who's just flying through the paint and trying to grab those offensive rebounds so i would lean more on a joakim noah um you know hopefully i, I don't know what the what is the timetable on Pau Gasol at this point there still isn't one okay and i mean like i look i'm not like he's here it, for organized team dinners yeah. Yes, which was I, I read that story on the Athletic, which was absolutely wonderful to read, and I, I really am like all about that. Oh my god, but, you can't then, see me rolling my eyes hard <laughs> enough right now. Oh, I'm so. You knew I'm, I was gonna say that, didn't you, Dan? I was. Oh. I had my mic muted because I was laughing so hard. <laughs> oh, I'm so I'm so all in on that stuff. I love that stuff. Uh, but but that's the problem, right? Like, yeah, he's great for team dinners and all that stuff. But like the fact that we're hold like I'm holding my breath for Pau Gasol to return just shows you 
like how devastated the Blazers are, how devastated we are on the front court right now. So hopefully we can pull a a joking no out of our hat, um, but we'll see. I would put put a number on it. I'd say the likelihood of them signing somebody is is better than 60% right now. And you think it's something that they would do right away? I think they'll wait until Zach's surgery. I think that'll be the 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 until get in there and get the final. Yes, just just in case, because if let let's say it's and and I'm not trying to be the worry boy, but say there's worst case scenario, then he's four months out, and then you've got PT time on top of that, and that's basically the season. Mm -hmm. And if that is the case, well, you need the body now. I'm so crushed for him. What an unfortunate what an unfortunate thing. Okay. Well, I'm going to move us on to our last question. Mm-hmm. And this one comes from plain old Pete Normal, uh, Bob at Bob underscore Deeger. This one's close to my heart, by the way. Uh, with so many injured bigs, why isn't Scal getting more minutes? And first, I would say Scal is actually getting more minutes. So, more minutes than anybody anticipated. I can tell you that. This is giving, a, but this gives us an opportunity to talk about Scal. I wrote about him for Mom's Favorite this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is certainly playing more minutes. He's playing closer to 20, 21, 23. I think he had the last couple of games. The first game that Zach was out, he didn't play as many, but then it's ramped right back up. So he's getting playing time. And I don't know about you guys, but I am perfectly satisfied with Scal playing as well as I had hoped he would play. I don't, he's not out there like world beating. He's not like suddenly like, we don't need anybody else anymore. But like I said in my article today, my for a young player like Scout, especially considering he came late to the game, you know, uh, he hasn't been playing it all his life. My gut, my thing is I do a gut check on like how often do I go, oh, my God, what is he doing? And mm-hmm. I don't do that with Scout. No, nope. Scout, yeah. I'm not worried about what he's doing. And yeah, then, that's the key, right? With, with, with Scout, like you said, he's been playing basketball for seven years, it's much like Yusuf Nurkic. He has got. If we're talking about like natural skills, he's got one of the naturally softest touches on a big man I think I've ever seen. It like when his jumper goes off, it when it when it when it snaps the net, it doesn't get that hard snap. It's like it it's like catching butterflies with a net. It's like woof. It's it's like it's unbelievably soft, and I don't understand how a man that big has that soft of a touch. And it's not just his jumper; it's his little baby hook. It's his finish at the rim, which is strongly, you know, in contrast to his dunks. That man tries to break the rim every time he dunks, and I love every second of it. But as far as minutes, he's gotten 23, 21, and 13 in his last three games. And I expect it to sit around 20 minutes as long as Zach's out, uh, unless they find an option that that comes in to kind of take through that. Um, I, I think Scal's been exactly what they needed. And for Terry to give him the, the rope that he's given him, it's pretty rare. It's it's not often that Terry gives young guys a whole lot of leeway. And Scal's been going out there. He's been a little ticky tack with, with some fouls. He's had four fouls in both games uh, of these last two. Um, but he's also had a positive plus minus in those games. Like he 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 helped key the run against the um, Thunder. Like he was very effective. Uh, against the Thunder, just getting to the free throw line, securing rebounds, getting blocks, just just doing all the right things. And hell, last night against Philly, he had 15. Like, I mean, he, I think he's doing exactly what what we want him to do, and he's being rewarded with the playing time, and that'll continue unless the roster makes a big change. 
Yeah, I almost wonder if he if the question came from the fact that like he's not starting, I guess. And like yeah. you know, last night they they ran out Mario Hazonia, which I was actually a big fan of running Mario Hazonia in the center position there. Uh, but I do wonder if like for this question, I forget the name. I apologize, but I almost wonder if that's sort of like a reaction to just him not starting. And I assume that like he will get starts. I assume that he. I mean, if, especially if Hassan Whiteside isn't playing, I think it's just like a de- it's very dependent on who they're playing and what the matchups are, etc. But yeah, I was I'm sort of surprised to hear that because I feel like I've seen him out there a lot. And as Dan said, like and and, and you Tara as well, like he he's not ne- he's not necessarily like a world beater out there, but he's definitely doing more than we even wanted or expected him to do. And I think that you have to look at that as a positive regardless. I am curious. I w- I was fully expecting that with both Whiteside and Collins out that he would start because he's the only person who has any sort of experience as limited as it is but he did play it in Sacramento. Uh you know, I really thought he was going to get the start at center so I was pretty surprised when he didn't. Um what are your guys thoughts on you know so like they started with Anthony was Anthony Tolliver playing power forward? Yep. Or was he playing center? Against it was, Philly, it was Hozonia at the center when the in the starting yes. lineup. Yep. Yeah. So the whole starting lineup was what under six eight or so. Six eight. Short. Yeah. Right. So like, why do you think they didn't start a seven foot person at center? Was it just lack I have of a pretty good guess. Lack of trust. What is it? Yes, it's it's I have yeah. a pretty good guess. It's, it's it's a lack of experience, lack of trust, and not wanting to put Scal in a bad position. Yes. That's that's the big thing. If if you have followed Terry's thoughts over the years, he does not want to put a guy in a position where he feels pressured. And there there's it the perfect example is Zach. There was discussion about possibly bringing Zach off the bench to start this year, but if he was coming off the bench, his offense would probably be relied on a little bit more as opposed to putting him with the starters where you've got Dame, CJ, Rodney, and Hassan. But you allow Zach to be comfortable there, to play defense, to play in those positions because he's surrounded by those guys. If you put Scal in the starting lineup, you are relying on Scal as your last line of defense. And that's a lot of pressure on him. And I think he's mentally capable. I think he's physically capable. But I think that the game still moves a little fast for him. And you see that in his fouls sometimes. And I think by having him come off the bench, you're not saying, hey, by the way, you're the anchor of our defense. Anthony Tolliver has been in the league for 12 years. And like I said earlier, he plays picture perfect, just basic, simple defense that never is going to get you hurt. And I think if if Scal racks up three fouls in the first five minutes, now your entire bench rotation is screwed because you have no big that you can play for any real minutes. And in doing so... I think it, it allows Scal to go out there and play a little bit more freely. I think you're also sacrificing defense. Like at that point, like you know that the defense is already like has a ton of holes in it. And so you're sort of just sacrificing defense at this point and just like going all in on your offense. You know, we saw at the start of last night's game, uh, Mario Zoni just opens up and hits two threes to start the game. And mm-hmm. oh, you have far- you literally have five shooters, all of which you can shoot at least 35% and above or have proven that they can do that. And that, you know, puts a traditional, uh, any traditional defense with a starting center, it puts them in a really, really bad spot at any given time. So like, yeah, you could put Scal on there. It fills a bit of a hole on defense, et cetera, but might as well just have, you know, bring him off the bench in his more natural role and put the pressure immediately on these teams and just chuck a bunch of threes and hopefully a bunch of them go in and 
you get out to that 10-3 start, you get out to that 15-6 to start or whatever it is, and you know teams start to have to adjust and, and make changes, whereas you are just sort of in your natural flow. I still think Scal could start. I mean, given the situation, not like you know if oh yeah if everybody is is I, uh, I think he healthy. could. Uh, but, I don't. I don't think. He, yeah, I don't think he could not start by any means. But I think Dan said it best. Like you don't want to just throw him out there. Get get him comfortable. Get him going. And once he has a couple of games like he did last night, or maybe down the road, then you're like, okay, matchup seems right against Team X. Let's put him out in the starting lineup. And then good to go. But I think to put him out there immediately, as Dan was saying, is just like good. It's going to rattle the cages a little bit and might as well just like go all in on your offense, get that to your advantage as opposed to, you know, struggling a little bit on offense, struggling a little bit even more on defense and then just sort of being like, all right, we're not really gaining much either way. I hear what you guys are saying, but I just am not feeling it. I I mean, <laughs> he put Noah Vonley in to start for many, many, many games. But again, and he's I think- surrounded by guys around him that are in. Like, if Zach is healthy right now, then you could see Scal start. Yeah. I just, I think, I think Scal plays exceptionally well alongside of Damien. And, but like you say, everybody plays well alongside Damien, but I think. He's the kind of person who is learning and getting better, like the Terminator, like throughout the entire game <laughs> because of his surroundings. And I, I don't know. I just I'm, I'm going to keep keep saying it that I just I think that not that I think that, you know, I know better than Terry or I obviously do not. I just am saying I would not be surprised if there's going to be a point in the season where he is starting because actually starting is what is best for his development. I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. And I, I, I think that there's going to be times where we do see Scal possibly start. But I think in the situation, particularly against Philly, with the way the lineup was, you're probably asking Scal to try to guard Ben Simmons. Right. And or, that's or Al Horford, too. So either. Yeah. And I think both those matchups, you're talking about either a guy who's incredibly unique for his size and could take him off the bounce, or one of the smartest centers in the entire NBA. Yeah. And that's 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 a lot to ask of him to be as a starter. And I guess yeah. we'll see it against Golden State. Honestly, yes. I, I see Willie Cauley Stein. He's familiar with Willie Cauley Stein. Him he was with mm-hmm. he was with him with the Kings. Like I can see him and, and they, they play the same kind of style, that that rim running athletic kind of player. I would be surprised if Terry decided to at least take a look at starting Scal. Now, the the flip side of this, obviously, is that he could still start Tolliver and be like, hey, Willie, get the hell out of the paint, start a three-point shooter. Mm-hmm. But uh, to highlight something you you, you said, um, Tara, the whole the, the Blackberry Bush point on Scal and, and how he works with Dame. Right now, on the active roster, hell, make Hassan and Zach healthy. Scal is the best screen setter that they have on this team. And that that is something that does matter when Scal. I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing the offense look pretty good with Scal on the floor is that guys are getting stuck to Scal when he sets those screens. And it is allowing Dame to get that extra step to make a decision whether to pull it or attack or to, to, to dissect the defense a little bit more. And so as he keeps doing those little things and finishing plays, I, t- I tell you one thing about Scal. He's been very decisive with the ball in the offensive end, whether it's been, I'm going to dunk this or I'm going to shoot this or, hey, let me look to the opposite side corner and find the shooter after the help has come in the short roll. It's been a, a very kind of robotic, but very systematic uh, 
set of choices that he's made. He's not like, well, what do I do? He, he seems more comfortable in the offense um, after having obviously a few games and a few months under his belt uh, here in Portland. Yeah, I'm super anxious to see what he looks like after they've all been playing. And like you said, let's give him a month. I'm really, I can't wait to see how this team comes together. It's totally fascinating. One of the things that I think you said during the summer was that with this team, no matter what, it's going to be interesting. And yes, definitely living up to that, I would say. What do you think, Varun? Uh, I've cut out for a second. Say it one more time. Oh, one of the things that we said over the summer was that, um, you know, however the Blazers are going to look and end up, you know, finishing in the season, whatever happens, it's going to be interesting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this you've seen it in the first six games, like every game is down to the wire. Every game is like there's something going on, whether it's positive or negative, that has you at the edge of your seat. So. I'm super excited. I'm still super, you know, I'm still super confident they can make the playoffs and that they will make the playoffs. I don't want to jinx anything by any means, but you know, it's going to be a, it's going to be a really fun team to watch game in the amount, you know, everyone talks about like a league pass ranking of sorts. Um, Blazers should be in the, in everyone's top five. No questions. For sure. So the Blazers have uh, three more. Well, they have four games until the next time we talk. They play Golden mm-hmm. State on Monday. They play uh, the Clippers on Thursday. The next night they play Brooklyn. And then finally on Sunday they play Atlanta. That Atlanta game, I don't know, Dan, we uh, may not be able to record that night depending on how late that game goes. Yeah, so that one's a little tougher. <laughs> we may be we may be a day out for people who listen to the podcast. We may be a we may wait a day to release that just because of the timing of that one game. Um, but I don't want to go deep into talking about those because we've gone on for a while and I'm sure there's going to be all kinds of previews coming out. People check Blazers Edge for all game of those previews. But just between those four games, Golden State, Clippers, Brooklyn, Atlanta. Which one are you most forward looking most forward to? Start with you, Varun, to watching. Uh, I am looking most forward to the Warriors game just because there's a potential final beatdown and I can finally talk some crap to my friends. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> you you're, you're, you're not kidding. <laughs> uh, I, I'm kidding a little bit. Uh, no, that, the Warriors are in a really, really tough situation right now. And look, they've had an amazing five, six, seven year run. Um, but it's like it still sucks to see what's happening there. Yeah. It's it's not fun. You, you would rather want it to go down like this. Exactly. Uh, no, I mean I think that the obvious answer here is probably the Clippers game. I mean that's a, I assume that's a TNT game. Um, it'd be really just fun to see sort of how the Blazers match up with arguably the best defense in the league. Um, maybe the second best compared to the Philadelphia one with Joel Embiid. But I, I think that's the obvious answer. Um, but don't sleep on Atlanta at all. Uh, don't sleep on, I mean, like a Dame versus Trey Young thing could be super fun. Uh, don't sleep on Brooklyn, Dame versus Kyrie. I know that conversation certainly picked up over the offseason where I think that I was not shocked by any means, but I was surprised at how many people, you know, gave Dame the nod over Kyrie, especially with Kyrie being, you know, supremely popular on social media, supremely popular amongst um, a ton of basketball heads just by the style of play, etc. cetera. Um, so I think just a lot of the point guard matchups in those the, the back half of that, that stretch uh, in the Atlanta game and in the Brooklyn game for sure. But I think the obvious one here is, is the Clippers. Uh, I'm curious what you think, though, Dan. Yeah, I, I would typically go with the Clippers, but considering Portland's got a mash unit and we don't know what the situation is going to be with the Clippers, who's going to play, who's going to not, is Kawhi going to play? You know, um, do they? Is, how healthy are they looking? And 
those kind of situations. Um, I mean, it'll be fun because Dame always makes sure to, to just absolutely rattle Patrick Beverly. Mm-hmm. Um, Beverly, you know, is, is obviously renowned as a defender, but Dame will just hibachis him like at, at every turn and it's hilarious. So that's something to look forward to, but, um, the Brooklyn game is definitely up there because the Dame Kyrie matchups have been electric for the last five years. I mean, the, the Dame and Kyrie have both had, I believe, 50 point games against each other. So um, that that matchup's always fun. But the, the Atlanta one, the Atlanta game, and I hope Trey's uh, ankle is good to go by then. He rolled it. He's a little gimpy right now. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but hopefully with, with a week, he's, he's able to, to at least get out there. Um, but him, John Collins, uh, Red Velvet, Kevin Werter. Um, I mean, they're, a, they're, a, they're, a, by the way, Red Velvet's a fantastic nickname. But yeah. they're, a, they're a fun team, man. DeAndre Hunter already looks like he could be an, a stud in the league. Um, I'm really excited to see how the next generation type, because when I look at Trey, I don't see Steph Curry. I, I see more Damian Lillard. Everybody wants to say that, that he, he he's more like Steph because of how he shoots. And I'm like, well, he's not as efficient. But he's he's explosive, and I think it, that's more of the Damian Lillard side of things than the Steph Curry kind of thing. Um, so I, I may be really interested to see how that game goes, and I hope Trey's healthy, and I hope everything else is kind of lining up, because I think that has the potential to be the most exciting game of, of the group. I just want to see how Evan Turner's doing. I hope he's doing well. Oh, yeah, Evan Turner yep. revenge and game. And Alan Crabb, but he's not playing, right? Isn't well, he- this is actually the Blazers tour. You, you, you've, right. you've got uh, Mo uh, with the Clippers, and you mm-hmm. if, and Crabb would have been with the Nets, and you have Evan with, uh, with the Hawks. So um, all we need is the uh, the Minnesota game, and you, you kind of get everybody wrapped in with Shabazz and um, – yeah. And Noah, and yeah, <laughs> it's, well, it's just layman. Also, also has uh, Alan Crab right now, um, yeah. and and almost Blazer Chandler Parsons. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of ties coming up. <laughs> yeah, well, guys, we've gone on for a while, uh, but this has been real fun talking to you. It's, let's go ahead and wrap it up here, Varun. Thank you so much for joining us and staying oh, up really late. I know it's probably super late over there on the East Coast, but why don't you tell folks uh, how they can find your work? Uh, you could just follow me on any social media platform. I have the same handle. It's just at Varun Bose, V-A-R-O-O-N-B-O-S-E. Um, you know, follow at your own discretion. I promise I'm not that interesting, but I would, you know, it's always fun to interact with people whenever. And uh, thank you both so much for having me. This has been super, super fun. Don't worry about me staying up late. I'll always stay up late to talk Blazers. Awesome. Let's see. I can be found at TCB Biggs on Twitter with two B's and two G's. You can also follow Blazers Edge on Twitter at Blazers Edge. And you can follow the Hoops and Talks podcast, which comes out every Thursday at Hoops and Talks. Danny, go ahead and take us out of here. All right. As always, folks, you can find me on social media at DMarang, at D-M-A-R-A-N-G, and following every game with Joe Simons on NBC Sports Northwest on Blazers Outsiders. Um, our, our ratings came in, and they're they're – going up so thank you all for that uh that's hey always yo. great to hear from you bosses uh hey your your show is sucking less cool um so <laughs> thank you all for that um it, it's, it's been a lot of fun already this season we're looking forward to, to having a, a few guests in having some surprises uh coming up here and next month we'll be at the rialto just like we did last year we're getting kicked out of our studio because kgw has our, our the uh toy drive that takes up literally the entire studio uh it's one of the cooler things i've ever seen in my entire life to see uh, 
50 by 50 room with a 20 foot tall ceiling filled, you know, completely with toys. It's like Scrooge McDuck, but with toys. And it's, it's amazing. You just want to dive into it. Uh, Varun, thanks again for joining us, man. For Tara, for Varun, for everybody else listening out there, thank you very much. We'll catch you next week. Take care and bye. <laughs>